This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 153. In this episode, I will tell the story of the ultra marathon that was the most impactful of all races in the history of the sport. This race was witnessed by tens of thousands of people in Madison Square Garden and followed by millions in long daily newspaper story updates. It received so much attention that it sparked an ultra-running frenzy on multiple continents and captured the imagination of millions of people who came to realize that humans can run hundreds of miles and not die. This is the story of the third Astley Belt race held March 10th through the 15th, 1879 in New York City. Make sure you get my new book on Amazon, The Six-Day Race Part 1, when ultra-runners were called pedestrians. You will read stories that have never been retold before. For the next few episodes of this podcast, we will return to the late 1800s as I research for Part 2 of the Six-Day Race History and uncover amazing stories that have been missed by other pedestrian historians. But catch up by getting my recent book, The Six-Day Race Part 1, on Amazon. By the end of 1878, at least 41 six-day races had been held in America and Great Britain since P.T. Barnum started it all with the first race in 1875. Daniel O'Leary of Chicago was still the undefeated world champion with 10 six-day race wins. He was a very wealthy man, winning nearly $1 million in today's value during 1878. All the racing was taking a toll on O'Leary, and he had frequent thoughts about retiring. However, he still had obligations as the holder of the Astley Belt and the title of Champion of the World. If he could defend the Astley Belt one more time, three wins in a row, by rule, he could keep the belt forever. A third Astley Belt race was in the early planning to be held sometime during the summer of 1879. Little did he know that the third Astley Belt race would be one of the most impactful spectator events in New York City's 19th century history, witnessed by more than 80,000 people. It impacted thousands of workers' productivity for a week and even distracted brokers on Wall Street away from their ticker tapes. The major New York City newspapers included more than a full page of details every day that revealed the most comprehensive details ever of a 19th century six-day race. Sir John Astley wanted to make sure a Brit would next win the Astley belt. After putting on an English championship in late October 1878, he identified the best British candidate that he thought could contend with O'Leary and bring the Astley belt back to England. His man was Charles Rowell, who had recently placed third in Astley's English championship six-day race with 470 miles. Charles Rowell started his running career in 1872, winning some races. Astley charged Rowell to get himself fit and promised to pay the expenses for him to travel to America for the third Astley Belt race. Prior to leaving England, it was rumored that he had covered a world record 539 miles in a private six-day trial, but Rowell would not confirm or deny it. 
John Ennis of Chicago was the first runner to properly apply to challenge for the Astley belt. Charles Harriman of Boston was the next, followed by Raoul. By the end of January 1879, O'Leary accepted the challenges and started planning for a June race. But within a few days, John Astley, the founder of the Astley Belt series, decided that the next Astley Belt challenge would need to be held in March 1879 at New York City in Gilmore's Garden, soon to be renamed Madison Square Garden. The near-term race date came as a huge surprise to the Americans O'Leary, Harriman, and Ennis. Clearly, Astley believed that Raoul was ready to be sent to America and didn't want to wait until June. With the surprising announcement, no additional American runners were even given time to enter. Astley was a shrewd, determined character. O'Leary gave in and said, I am ready to walk at two days' notice. A week before the race, Raoul and Ennis trained together in Central Park. New York was curious about the Englishman. Raoul is the smallest man of the four candidates and now weighs about 140 pounds in costume. His style of progression is a trot, yet he moves along with little apparent exertion. Raoul said, I'm not a walker. I know how to run, but I am a poor walker. At Gilmer's Garden, the eight-foot-wide track, eight laps to a mile, was improved to eliminate the clouds of dust that had hindered the earlier O'Leary-Campana race. It was composed of compacted sawdust on clay and rolled for hours. Careful attention was paid to make sure the spectators had good accommodations. A 12-foot-wide platform was constructed outside of the track, with a railing for spectators to view the runners closely. The space for scores and the members of the press was ample, and well protected from unwarranted intrusion by a high picket fence. Police officers would be stationed to prevent spectators to interrupt the competition. A huge blackboard was placed in the center of the building for every mile to be promptly posted. A box near the Madison Avenue entrance was designated to be the telegraph office, and wires were run to the Western Union building. Messages would be sent to England directly from the track. Fires from 17 furnaces would warm the building. Huts or cottages were provided for each man and their crews. They were 10 by 11 feet, and each was furnished with gas stoves, comfortable beds, and plenty of cooking utensils. The third Astley Belt race held on March 10, 1879, was billed as the greatest pedestrian match that has ever been contested in this country. It had the most bizarre start in the history of ultra-running. Three hours before the 1 a.m. start, hundreds of interested spectators lined up five deep for a block long on Madison Avenue anxious to buy tickets. The ticket sellers worked furiously and hundreds of people pressed into the building without paying. Such a scene has not been witnessed previously at a walking match. When the doors opened, there was a rush by the eager throng. As thousands of people were pouring into Gilmer's garden, the contestants arrived at midnight, greeted by 4,000 people, and shut themselves in their little huts away from the confusion to prepare. With an hour to go, the crowd was surging back and forth, and there was still a mass of people outside wanting to get in. The police did their best to hold off the rush through the door. 
Meanwhile, the great crowd was as noisy and unruly as possible, and the brass band in attendance could hardly drown the noise made by the excited bettors. A few minutes before the start at 1 a.m., with a building full of about 10,000 people, the police closed the outer doors, greatly disappointing those who were shut out on the street. Outside, this caused a howl of disappointment and rage. Let us in! Hey, open the door! The four contestants for the belt lined up at the start line. Thousands wanted to watch the start and stood on tables and chairs and even on one another's shoulders. William B. Curtis, who founded the Athletic Clubs of New York and Chicago, was the starter and shouted the word, Go! O'Leary led the group in a fast walk, but before the lap was complete, Raoul broke out into a trot. O'Leary soon also started into a trot, and soon all four were running, causing a frenzy among the spectators. Then it happened. When the first mile was announced on the blackboard with a time of 9 minutes 25 seconds, the cheering was deafening. Those who were left outside the building heard the roar. The outside crowd turned into an angry mob and rushed for the entrance, overwhelming the two policemen out there, broke down the door of its hinges, and pushed into the building. A dozen policemen inside rushed to meet the mob, including police captain Alexander Clubber Williams, who was known for his brutality. Then occurred one of the liveliest scrimmages seen in New York for a long time. The police used their clubs freely, and the blows fell thick and fast at random. This harsh usage was effectual, and the mob was driven clear of the building. The sound of the heavy blows rained upon the defenseless heads and bodies of the unfortunates, who happened to be in the front ranks, was sickening. The riot that issued was not only because the crowd was denied entry, but also because of the police brutality that injured 70 people and sent them to the hospital. Rocks were thrown at the windows of the building, breaking at least one, and some climbed onto the roof. Police patrol lines were eventually established so that nobody could approach within a block of the garden. Those inside the building didn't dare to venture out among the angry thousands. After two hours, the outside crowd finally dispersed. Meanwhile, Raoul continued to run, leading the small pack, completing the first eight miles in one hour ten minutes, with O'Leary about a mile behind. O'Leary walks with his usual grace stride and is loudly applauded. He outruns Raoul whenever he wants to. At times the runners were in a single file trotting. At such times the people in the inner circle would rush from side to side to get a better view of the men. The tramping of their feet sounded like a squadron of cavalry. Raoul was the first to reach 100 miles in 19 hours 34 minutes, with O'Leary 13 miles behind still plagued by a sour stomach. When they were on the track at the same time, Raoul would tuck in behind O'Leary on the laps and never let O'Leary unlap himself. When O'Leary would break into a trot, Raoul would do the same. At the end of day one, the score was Raoul 110 miles, Harriman 100, Ennis 95, and O'Leary 93. At 2 a.m. on day two, O'Leary was the only man on the track and was cheered by about a thousand people who were still there. 
At 4.40 a.m., Raoul resumed running. The race captured the imagination of New York City. Bulletins were displayed and kept updated out in the streets that attracted crowds of eager news seekers. Such general interest in a match of this kind has never been excited in this or any other city. It is the one theme of town talk, and the throngs that haunt the scene of the contest at all hours of the day and night are unprecedented. The city streets were truly transformed on the blocks that housed newspaper buildings. Groups of patient and persistent onlookers remained for an hour at a time to see the next announcement placed on the board. As each hour approached, streams of people flowed in the direction of the Herald office. What's the news? Who's ahead? Stage drivers would even slow down their carriages as they passed to get a little news. Boys who could not afford a ticket would use jackknives to cut holes through a wall panel of Gilmore's garden, hoping to get a peek at the action inside. Ralph started to be referred to as the little feller and did many long runs. His handlers spent most of their time, quote, concocting mysterious drinks and messes over the small gas stove that occupies one corner of the apartment. They were very secretive and would not answer questions about how Raoul was doing. The tall Harriman kept up a tremendous pace with a great swinging stride at, quote, the untiring regularity of a machine. He started to receive the nickname Steamboat. Ennis was called Honest John by his friends. The band was having a wonderful time, sometimes playing tunes that would annoy O'Leary. Spectators would beat time with their feet and whistle or hum in unison. Everybody was good-natured and cheery. A solid buzz kept coming up over the hall. Waiters in spotless white aprons would flit around here and there, handing foaming beer mugs to dainty, elegantly clad ladies in reserve boxes. The great overhanging balcony was alive with hearty, smoking, noisy men. Bookmen canvassed the crowd with their little red books taking bets. An enormous bar counter, 400 feet long, took up the space under the gallery. It was the equivalent of 20 to 30 bars, each with a bartender. Men five to ten deep pushed, swearing, smoked, hustled and bustled and shouted for their favorite beverage. They drank beer by the hundred kegs, whiskey by the barrel and gin by the gallon. Money flowed like beer. Everyone drank pretty much all the time. Meanwhile, everything on the track was business. Ennis looked the freshest. Harriman looked worn out, and it was rumored that Raoul was getting out of order with a calf strain. It seemed clear that O'Leary was not fully recovered from his last six-day walk two months earlier. He was said to look stale, not walking with any of his old vim, holding his piston rods almost down to his knees. Harriman and Ennis encouraged him along. The crowd kept yelling, Keep it up, Dan! As midnight approached, a gang of gatecrashers used a beam of wood as a battering ram to break down a door to get into the building. Police eventually rounded them up, arrested them, took them out of the building, beat them, and then let them go. 
At the end of the day, 48 hours, the score was Raoul 197 miles, Harriman 186, Ennis 173, and O'Leary 164. The crowd thinned out during the early hours of day three. A few made beds for themselves from seats. The spectators wore a subdued look, some having their eyes closed in slumber and others yawning at frequent intervals. Dawn arrived and the tired runners were back on the track. In the afternoon, Raoul tried to use his shadowing strategy on Harriman, running close on his heels. Harriman said, It didn't bother me. I heard the Englishman puffing pretty hard, that is all. The crowd didn't like watching these dogging antics from Raoul and yelled at him, Come here, little doggy. Then to Raoul yelled, Why don't you jump on his shoulders? Get him to tote you around, little boy. But the main story of the day on the track was O'Leary's demise. He reached his 200th mile, but his pace was terribly slow, with, quote, some feeble spurts which were like the efforts of a drowning man to surmount the waves. It was obvious that he had broken down, as he could hardly walk a single yard without swerving back and forth. The crowd gave him silent respect. His attendants wore sad faces. His backer admitted that O'Leary wasn't in good shape for the race, still not recovered from his last one. He still tried to plod along courageously, but during mile 216, he had to stop three times. He was about 35 miles behind Raoul. The doctor determined that his health had declined beyond the ability to continue. O'Leary eventually came out, walked to the judge's stand, and said, Gentlemen, I have finished. He would be giving up the Astley belt. An evening news story was published, and newsboys went to every part of the city, theaters, hotels, squares, and secluded streets, spreading the sad news about the fallen champion. Later, a rumor spread all over the city that O'Leary was dead. Police Captain Clubber Williams confirmed the false report, stating that the champion had died at the Metropolitan Hotel shortly after he had been brought there. Then it was reported that O'Leary had died from being poisoned and that a man had been arrested. The poor hotel clerks were deluged with hundreds of inquiries, but they denied that O'Leary had even been staying there. The city coroner even dropped by the hotel in search of the body. O'Leary was eventually found at St. James Hotel, and the coroner proclaimed, O'Leary never looked better in his life. There is nothing the matter with him. Well, then why did O'Leary leave the track? The coroner replied, Because he was tired and couldn't go any further. O'Leary's doctor was asked why O'Leary broke down so soon. He blamed it on his trip to the hot springs, which softened up his feet and made him sick. Then the atmosphere in this garden was simply rank poison, as bad as arsenic. At every breath, he got a mouthful of dust, smoke, and stale air. O'Leary could not win the Astley belt for the third time in a row, and thus could not claim it permanently. It would have a new steward. At 4 p.m. on day three, the score was Raoul, 250 miles, Harriman, 238, Ennis, 223, and O'Leary, 215, dropped out. The biggest story about this historic race wasn't about the competition taking place on the track, 
It was about what was occurring among the crowds of tens of thousands of spectators and the impact of the race on the entire city. Ultra-running would emerge as the greatest spectator sport of its era in America. The New York Sun prophesied truly about the bizarre event taking place. When the historian hundred years hence looks over the files of this week's newspapers, he will not believe all that he finds on the subject is sober history. He will take it for a poor joke or a big humbug. And what is there to show for the week's excitement? Several heads clubbed? Thousands of poor wretches encouraged in their betting and gambling proclivities? And four men worn out? This is a great country. At about 8.15 p.m. on day three, a tragic accident occurred among the spectators causing, quote, such a scene of wild and indescribable confusion and alarm that has rarely been witnessed inside a public building. Certainly, it was the greatest accident among spectators in ultra-running history. A temporary upper gallery had been constructed that was divided into boxes. It was an ideal location to view the entire track and was very overcrowded with ten times the number of people intended. A throng of ladies and gentlemen crowded every available inch of the place, some seated and many perched upon chairs and tables. Suddenly, a portion of the gallery collapsed down upon the roof of the pavilion below. The first intimation of danger was the gradual settling of the flooring, then a loud creaking noise, and away went a section of 15 yards of gallery, carrying with it over 100 people. Many, including ladies, were hurled 18 feet below. Thankfully, the structure did not collapse all at once, giving many below some time to escape, including those tending stands for a glass blower and flower bouquets. A few others below were less fortunate. The frail structure broke into small pieces in the descent, and the unfortunate people who were precipitated with it were jammed between the debris, several of them being seriously injured. The most serious injuries involved a broken leg, broken hand, broken collarbone, and a concussion. A wall of struggling, groaning, maimed, and terrified people was piled up. A gashed face peeked through the broken timbers, an outstretched arm there. Panic ensued as people started stepping on injured people trying to get away. A crowd of dust spread, seen by all in the building. Panic spread throughout the building as some spectator thought the entire building was collapsing. The runner stopped and left the track. A surge of people pressed forward to exit the building near the collapsed area. The police started rescue efforts among the rubble. Women and children went rushing about, almost delirious with terror, looking for their absent friends and relatives. To add to the general alarm, a number of stones were thrown by some ruffians outside as they crashed through the window panes. The sounds were such as firemen make when entering a burning building. It was a miracle that hundreds of people were not crushed in the panic. A policeman rushed to the band and yelled for them to play. At that very moment, when there was the greatest danger of a fatal crash, the band struck up a lively air, the police cleared the track, and Ennis marched through the passage they cleared for him. The fear of the multitude was still great, but lessening by degrees, until a cheer and clapping of hands brought reassurance. About 1,000 people left the building at that time. How many were injured altogether was impossible to state, for men with crushed hats in their hands and coats covered with dust 
bleeding from slight cuts on their heads and hands, left the place in haste. Outside the building, people on the streets were surprised to see men coming out of windows, jumping to the ground, risking injury. Rumor spread quickly. Someone yelled, It's on fire! Another, The roof is falling in! This caused panic outside, too. Ambulances with clanging bells arrived, attracting many city people with a morbid curiosity. The police brought things into order, at times brandishing clubs. At the accident site, a tangled mass of woodwork remained, with sprinkling drops of blood, broken bottles, strips of cloth, and bouquets of flour that had been prepared for the runners. The rubble was cleared out within an hour. The excitement of the match soon swept away all memory of the accident. I guess the show must go on. By late evening, with a crowd of about 8,000 people, there seemed to be no worry that other heavily laden balconies might fall. The continual great mass of humanity, the shouts, clapping, and the blaring of the band kept the structure pulsating like an enormous heart. The scene was not only wonderful, sublime, and majestic, it was terrible. The effect that the runners had on the crowd was amazing to behold. Whenever one of the pedestrians began a spurt, hundreds of men would precipitate themselves in the direction in which he was going and would rush around the inner edge of the ring like a cyclone. Everything and everybody that stood in their way was swept before them as the sand of the desert. The thunder of their feet upon the floor was like tread of a myriad of buffaloes on the hard-baked surface of the prairie when they are fleeing before a cougar. At the end of this eventful day, the score was Raoul, 283 miles, Harriman, 270, Ennis, 250, and O'Leary retired with 215.7 miles. On day four, after about four hours of sleep, the three remaining runners went back to work. Ennis became the crowd favorite and received the loudest cheers. Peddlers circulated the halls selling Ennis badges for fans to wear on their chests. Others sold trading cards for each of the runners. Raoul concluded that Harriman couldn't win the race and changed to play mind games with Ennis and sprinted past him, causing Ennis to give chase. Round the track they spun, Raoul leading at first, but soon Ennis passed the Englishman. They continued the sprint for a mile as the spectators roared with approval as Ennis won the short event. Outside on the streets presented chaos at times. Each day, workers would eat their lunches in front of bulletin boards waiting for the latest news. Everyone seemed to be keeping score, men of all races and nationalities. As soon as the six o'clock score was made known, the crowd that had swelled to immense proportions separated and boarded the streetcars for home. At 6 p.m., Ennis passed Harriman into second place. Two pickpockets were noticed by the police in the crowd. The two men dashed across the track, right in front of Raoul, who was somewhat frightened, thinking that they were about to assault him. The men were caught just as they were about to rush up the stairs. At the same time, some commotion was caused by three boys who climbed up water pipes outside the building to sneak in the building through a high window, causing a lot of laughter. The police caught them and, quote, Their exit was more painful than their entrance. At the end of the day, the score was 
Ralph 360 miles, Ennis 335, and Harriman 325. During the wee hours of the morning on day five, the action was very boring with runners away from the track most of the time. In the long rows of red leather-covered seats lining two sides of the building, hundreds of people slept peacefully, and in the dark recesses of the artificial rockwork of the lower end of the garden were many more sleepers, most of whom were boys huddled together in ragged heaps who had smuggled themselves in through the window. All day Harriman struggled. Poor Harriman tottered around the track like a dead man all day. It seemed impossible for him to go on. But four electric shocks, given at intervals and numerous douses of milk punch, champagne, brandy, and other stimulants poured into him in rapid succession, kept him going until far into the night. He was described as looking like a horse with a nail in its foot. (laughs) Women spectators were numerous. They wore all kinds of headgear and every imaginable pattern of outside dress. Hats, fur caps, bonnets with plumes, derby tiles, fur-lined cloaks, woolen jackets, blanket shawls, camel's hair shawls, old women, young girls, fashionably attired ladies, women with opera glasses, women who drank champagne, women who gulped beer, all sorts of women sat and laughed and chatted and now and then waved encouragement. Ennis worked hard to keep the belt in America, but if not, was focused on reaching 450 miles in order to earn a share of the massive gate money. He and Ral had sprint races now and then. Away they went for ten laps, the crowd rushing madly around them and cheering like lunatics. Rumors of plotted threats against Raoul to prevent him from winning reached the police and they ordered an extra force in the building. In the evening, when Ennis passed Raoul to unlap himself once, it bugged Raoul, and another race took place as Ennis tried to get away from him. The spectators became a mob of howling lunatics. Wave after wave of applause rolled around and around the vast hall, making the timber shake. For three laps, the race continued, and then Raoul, with a laugh, gave up amid wild cheers and derisive yells. Later, a huge cheer went up, so loud that you couldn't hear yourself speak. What is it they're cheering? All eyes are facing east and inspecting the tally board. Ennis, 400. Before the thunders of applause died away, a new thing happened. Walking side by side, suddenly Ennis puts his arms around little Raoul's neck, and for nearly half a lap, the two went on together down the pack. At the end of day five, the score was Raoul, 430, Ennis 408, and Harriman 390. Ennis put on an impressive last day performance, but it was very apparent that Raoul would win. The building was surprisingly full at 2.24 a.m. when Ennis came out. This caused a commotion at the 400-foot bar. At least 2,000 men dropped their glasses, spilled their beer, forgot to pay, and rushed for the narrow places of exit. Tables were overturned, chairs were smashed, waiters were pushed here and tumbled there, and more men were jammed against the entrances than ever before to watch Ennis on the track. The band played Yankee Doodle as the crowd of 
10,000 sleepless people whistled along in unison and kept time with their feet. Harriman continued on his weary course around the track. His eyes were sunken, his legs trembled, and the whole appearance of the man showed that he was nearly exhausted. There was no life in him. He simply knew that if he made 450 miles, he would get his share of the gate money. There was great doubt that he would reach his goal. He needed to run 58 miles in the last 20 and a half hours on his tired and sore legs. Raoul was generally treated with respect by the New York crowd, but during the last early morning, when there were few police watching, a, quote, low-browed, hook-nosed individual started to heap abuse on the Brit, Raoul. He called him foul names and riled up the sleepy crowd who remained to shake their fists and shout war whoops. The ringleader would rush up to the rail when Raoul passed, shaking his fist in his face, yelling things full of obscenities that included, You English If you win this race, I'll cut your heart out. Boys, go for him. Let's kill this Britain. Then the mob would yell and screech like famished harpies and rush in a body to the opposite side of the ring so as to be ready for him when he came around the turn. The man finally rushed on the track and pursued Raoul for a quarter of a lap with nearly 500 unruly men running around the inner rail of the track following after their ringleader. Some gentlemen urged the police officers to do their duty. The scoundrel was seized and dragged off the track. Then two police were ordered onto the track to walk beside Raoul for protection. Food for the crowd was running short. The lunch counter was doing a thriving business, selling a compound called clam chowder by the gallon, whose principal components were water and pepper. The clams had all but disappeared long before. The waiters could not make sandwiches fast enough to satisfy the hungry crowd of 5,000 who intended to see the conclusion of the match. One of the greatest problems for the runners was the tobacco smoke in the air. The walls were packed with men, everyone smoking. Cigars adorned the facial features of the majority, but cigarettes in the teeth of hundreds poisoned the air and odorized the entire garden. Conflicting cries around the hall were heard. Gentlemen, please don't smoke! And... Cigars! Five cents apiece! The smokers ignored pleas to stop. Great clouds of dense blue smoke curled gracefully over the vast congregation and floated away toward the illuminated rafters and far off into the recesses of the galleries, already suffocating with a plethora of humanity. One of the greatest ultra-running displays of sportsmanship was witnessed. As Harriman was limping along the track, Raoul caught up to him at the scorer's table, shook hands with him, and then walked by his side, encouraging him along. Putting his arm within Harriman's, they trod the track side by side. Men rose from their seats, ladies stood on their chairs waving handkerchiefs, and every man in the neighborhood of the two pedestrians was cheering himself hoarse. Anna soon joined them, and all three locked arms. Such sportsmanship dashed away any fears of a riot. Strong men with tears in their eyes said one to another, I would not have missed this for a thousand dollars. Another said, talk about a riot, this is a love feast. 
Police commented that they were not needed there. During the final hours, the attendance was the largest scene during the race, bursting with people, making it very difficult to even move. Only the track was clear, and that was lined with a double row of policemen. There was a total of nearly 500 officers in the building, some in plain clothes. Never before was an assemblage so madly and persistently enthusiastic. The cheers rolled in successive swells around and around the vast amphitheater, wave following wave. In another show of sportsmanship, when Raoul was on his 497th mile, he caught up with Harriman, who had paused to adjust his handkerchief. Raoul held back and didn't pass him. At once there was a cry of three cheers for the little Briton, and a unified cheer from the north side of the house answered back grandly. Raoul smiled, pleased, and the pair continued their journey. At 8.45 p.m., when Harriman was on his 450th mile, all three walked together in honor of the third-place Harriman reaching the critical milestone. Raoul kindly took on pacing duties. Harriman walked the home stretch of his last lap, carrying a pillow with the American shield, and the crowd grew frantic. Everyone sprang to their feet, shrieked, yelled and shouted, waving hats and fluttering handkerchiefs. The band played the Yankee Doodle as men shouted, screamed, danced, and shook each other's hands with excitement that Harriman had reached the needed 450 miles to receive a share of the gate money, about $100,000 in today's value. And then he went into his cottage, waving his flag, thanking the crowd. Raoul and Ennis continued together for two more laps as Raoul reached his 500th mile for the win in about 140 hours, and then he stopped. He went to his cottage and came out waving an American flag, showing his appreciation to the audience. Reporters were stunned witnessing this largest historic crowd in the garden. All manner of men conducted themselves like lunatics. Every throat was exerted to its utmost capacity. Not a man was silent. Certainly no woman was. Flags waved, handkerchiefs flourished, hats were high in the air. Ennis continued plodding along strongly and received the cheers of the adoring crowd until he finished his 475th mile. He retired to his cottage and the crowd emptied the building to the tune of Home Sweet Home. The final score was Raoul 500 miles, Ennis 475 miles, Harriman 450 miles, and O'Leary 215 miles. Charles Raoul was the winner of the Astley Belt and the new long-distance champion of the world. Raoul was taken to his hotel room, stripped, rubbed down, and put to bed. He slept on and off for the next eight hours and then got up for breakfast. Many visitors, including young lady admirers, had to be turned away to let Raoul recover. The Astley Belt was reclaimed by the British and Raoul was the new champion pedestrian of the world the New York Times had devoted nearly a full page of newsprint each day for the race. Now that the contest is ended, a general feeling of relief pervades the city, and though the feeling of regret at the loss of the belt is universal, people are glad of a breathing spell and a chance to recover from their temporary attack of the walking mania. 
British sportsmen were happy to reclaim the belt from America. Raoul is the brave and generous Englishman, one of the most plucky of little British sportsmen that ever crossed the Atlantic. As a walker, Raoul is both bad and ugly, but as a trotter and a runner, he is wonderful. In fact, his power of endurance is really marvelous. Stay tuned for more surprising six-day race history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>